Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Okay, and here we are today. Welcome, uh, Robert. Uh, today we're here with Robert uh, Lipsight. He was an award-winning sports writer for the New York Times and an Emmy-winning host on the nightly public affairs show, The 11th Hour. He is the author of 12 acclaimed novels for young adults and the recipient of the Margaret A. Edwards Award, honoring his lifetime contribution in the genre. He lives in Manhattan and on Shelter Island, New York, with his wife, Lois, and, and your dog, Milo. Is that correct? Uh, unfortunately, Rob Milo died, but he's been oh. replaced by Apollo, a standard oh. poodle, who is very happy today because standard poodles uh, won Best in Show at the Westminster Show at Madison Square Garden. Awesome. I'm sorry to hear about um, Milo. We just lost two of our dogs uh, about a month ago, a week oh. apart from each other. Oh, man, that's hard. It's- it's hard, yeah, definitely. Uh, but we have a puppy, so we're moving, moving on. Um, yeah, I don't uh, understand why some sometimes the loss of a dog seems more poignant than the loss of a human being. I, you know, a lot of thoughts go into your head. You know, yeah. I spent a lot of you spent a lot of time with your dog. Um, they probably know more than maybe other people know about you. Um, it, it's definitely hard. Um, but you've written a lot of books, uh, a lot of great books. Um, the one I, I've been, uh, interested in is, is here is a baseball, um, basically because you, you kind of point out a lot of faults with, with athletes and baseball players in this book. Um, you know, they're just human beings like everybody else, but I thought it'd be great to talk about, um, and we can get into it. The, the Astros scandal, um, in regards to some of the issues that, that have been in the past with baseball, such as. Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa with steroids, um, Pete Rose gambling. You know, Ryan, I'm a little underwhelmed by the the Astros situation. And you know what really snapped it for me was when Trump started pimping Pete Rose to get into the Hall of Fame. And I was thinking, man, here's this lawless president now bringing this kind of lawlessness to the one place where we thought, incorrectly, of course, the one place where we thought there was a kind of sanctity and and purity. Okay, the Astros. Now, you're too young to remember, but you know, because you're obviously a historian, is that in 1951, the shot heard around the world when Bobby Thompson won, uh, got, got the Giants into the World Series, there was somebody in the scoreboard with binoculars stealing signs. Now, I think maybe in 1951, binoculars were the, um, I don't know, the equivalent of today's technology. Maybe that's too far of a stretch. But I think that the real rap on the Astros seems to have been not so much the sign stealing, which you're allowed to do, of course, if you're a runner on second base and you're, you're, you're watching, but because of the elaborate 
you know, uh, technology, the video, the audio, the bells and whistles. But isn't that really a kind of extension of what's been going on? I mean, Ty Cobb, bad guy, uh, stole signs. Everybody stole signs. Um, was it because it was so elaborate? Was it because in this desperate time we live in, we have to keep the sense of baseball as pure? I mean, I, I, I don't really kind of get it. And, and as you brought up so very well in your intro, you know, baseball has really a history uh, of cheating. Um, steroids, of course. Uh, I don't even believe we're out of the steroid age at the moment. I agree with you. I think that the, the doctors uh, are so much smarter than they were you know, 20 years ago. Um, and usually the users are ahead uh, of the enforcers. Mm -hmm. So um, that, that's the question. I mean, what do you think? Do you think sports should reflect the lives we live or that they should be a never-never land? No, I don't think it should be a lawless um, uh, organization. Uh, I, I, I do remember growing up as a little boy uh, knowing that, uh, you know, it's the job to, to find out what the signs are, find out what the base coach's signs are. You want to know when that person's stealing. Um, I, I vividly remember somebody teaching us to, to watch the um, catcher's muscles in his, in his forearms to see uh, which ones quiver when they put down certain signals. I mean, I remember that. Um, but then when I talked to, to even my son now, my son... This was when you were a kid? When I was a kid, yeah. Um, well, already very sophisticated. Uh, and a coach, an adult coach told you this? Absolutely, yeah. Wow. But when I talk to my son now, who's 24 and just finished playing college baseball about the Astros, and, um, you know, he thinks it's the worst thing that could happen. Um, I don't know. I don't know where does it end. I mean, it, it's, it's obviously a given you're trying to get an upper hand and an advantage in any sport. Uh, right. Whatever it would be, football, when they would use um, the grip on their hands to catch the football better. Um, or, or steroids or, or, or any. surgery. Yes. And, you know, where does performance enhancement begin and end? Right. That's a hard question. And you brought up a great point with, I was going to bring that up in my question is now it opened up uh, the, the, the re-entry for Pete Rose, um, a push to get back into the hall of fame uh, or back into baseball in general. Um, where does it end? I don't know. I don't. I don't have the answer to that. One of one of the um, rationales for bringing him back was that he only bet on his own team, which may or may not be true. I don't. I don't believe that. But even if he only bet on his own team, any time he bet on his own team, you knew. You know, he knew something. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah. And he can. He can definitely sway the outcome of a game. Yeah, right. So, I mean, at the same week that the president is going to make sure that his pal Roger Stone, you know, uh, doesn't go to the big house forever, uh, he's going to reach out to Pete Rose. Somehow I feel uncomfortable, you know, weighing, you know, Pete Rose on one hand and Roger Stone, you know, that. that that horrible SEAL team member, Eddie Gallagher, you know, who killed people for sport uh, in Afghanistan. Now, I love Pete Rose. Let me just say it out there. I covered him. He was a really nice guy. And um, he was a good guy. I mean, now some people, some other reporters felt that he was doing this for show. But I remember on more than one occasion, uh, particularly when we were in Cincinnati, uh, but also when he was traveling Philadelphia, he would go out of his way to be nice to some high school kid who was reporting for his local paper. You know, he was this kid, you know, somehow gets through PR down to the dugout before a game. Oh, Mr. Rose, you know, could I ask you? Well, of course. And he would, he would give the kid 10, 15 minutes and talk to them. I thought it was wonderful. 
I mean, certainly because I come out of a time where I remember Mickey Mantle spitting at kids who asked oh, for wow. Oh, yeah, he was terrible. And um, an awful lot of ballplayers that we were um, conditioned to adore who you know, were really scummy guys. But, but Pete was nice. Pete was answered questions. And, and, of course, this is self-serving, but Pete was nice to the media as well. He was also a hell of a ball player. What a great ball player he was. So um, I was really sorry that, you know, the anvil fell on his head. But he brought it on himself. He himself had some dark corners. Um, we knew, but in those days we never reported, we knew that there in the stands, there were, and he was married man, in the stands there was a pretty young woman wearing a diamond ankle bracelet uh, uh, that said, to my rookie of the year. <laughs> <laughs> this is Pete. Okay, so we can appreciate Charlie Hustle, but we don't have to put him in the Hall of Fame. Mm -hmm. I don't, what do you think? Well, I'm a Mets fan. I've always been a Mets fan. So I, in my mind, I always remember Pete Rose. Uh, you know, they threw the ball over to first base and he slammed it into the turf. I, I don't know. That always irritated me, but he wasn't on my team. Um, right. I, I do think gambling... Again, you said before, where where does it start and stop? Where do you you allow this or don't allow that? Somebody has to make that that yeah. that fine line. I guess that's the commissioner. Um, but uh, again, with all the the penalties that the commissioner laid out, are they right? Or are they wrong? I don't know. They they seem to stop at the front office with the Astros and didn't bring it down to the players at, at this point. Maybe they still will. Well, people are calling for every player on those teams um, to be banned. Wow. And also the games to be stripped, the trophies. And the, I don't know. That's a little harsh, maybe. But do you think that? You know, um, I, I really would have to believe that stealing signs was that awful. They didn't fix games. I mean, I think the Black Sox scandal of 1919 is kind of the, uh, I hate to say gold standard, but, you know, that's kind of the bar. Um, you know, that, you know, fixing the World Series, well, you know, you're out of here. Um, of course, the reason that they were called the Black Sox was because their owner was so cheap, he did not launder their uniforms often enough on the road. So they were often wearing dirty black uniforms. And apparently it was a very unpleasant uh, situation for the ballplayers. But that that's of no account. But I mean, we've seen we've seen worse before. Uh, and I, 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 I just can't get too excited about the Astros. Mm -hmm. as, as a pet fan, you know, we're angry. We don't like the Astros, but what are you going to do? How did you, how did you get involved in writing? Like when you were young, when did you know that? Well, I knew I knew from the third grade that the only thing I wanted to do was write. Wow. Uh, I mean, I was lucky that way. There was you know nothing else kind of diverted me. I was briefly a pre med in college because you know I'm, I'm Jewish and uh, Jewish boys of that time all had to be doctors or lawyers. But I got out of that soon enough and. Uh, Right after college graduation, I answered an ad in the New York Times for what turned out to be copy boy in the sports department of the New York Times. Wow. And uh, things went on from there. And it, it was a really a good time to do that because they were less interested in, in people who really knew their X's and O's, like you, um, and then people who were feature writers, which I basically was. Um, and it was not something, it was just going to be a summer job for me before I went to California and uh, became a screenwriter. Uh, but I loved it. I loved the times and I came to love sports and um, I stayed. Uh, so growing up, growing up, you did, you did not love sports? Did, you, did it kind of just... No, I mean, I was, I was not as serious. I was a fat kid, so I didn't play ball till late. 
Um, I was not a serious fan, um, but my parent, my dad was a high school English teacher, and he was more interested in my reading. Um, so um, it, it was serendipitous, and then and then of course, I got two lucky assignments early on when I when I was twenty four. Um, the Mets, the first spring training of the New York Mets, they sent me um, because they wanted a feature writer. They knew that it was going to be a lousy team, so why waste the time of a real baseball writer? So I went down and basically wrote, you know, and it was a different time. I mean, 1962 with the Mets, it was heaven. I mean, I, I shagged balls in the, in, in the outfield. Um, I batted in batting practice, which was a real eye-opener. So the batting practice pitcher is a coach, not even a pitcher, Cookie Lavagetto. Ah. And um, his little soft, you know, down the middle, you know, they were in the catcher's glove before I you know, could move the bat. And in the outfield, you know, what has always been called a soft fly ball. Well, a soft fly ball from the bat of a major leaguer, you know, feels feels like a, a shot put going through your hand. And I, I guess my hand still hurts remembering that from how many years ago. And, and so I really became to understand the difference between me and them. You know, that the Major League Baseball player is another species of human being. So that was a great eye-opener. And then, of course, my big break was in 1964 when Cassius Clay challenged Sonny Liston for the heavyweight championship. And the Times' real boxing writer didn't want to be bothered. Uh. You know, he, well, Cassius Clay is going to be knocked out in the first round. Why go all the way down? Miami, and he said the magic words to the sports editor, which were, send the kid. He's not doing anything. <laughs> I was a kid. And I went down, and of course, uh, it, it made my career. And then that's when you started writing books at that time? Or were you still... I didn't start writing books until, um, well, a couple of years later, yeah. I mean, I started writing books... The first, uh, the, the first really book that, that sent kids to college uh, was a book, uh, a novel called The Contender about a black kid boxer. And uh, that really came about um, the night before an Ali fight. I'm in Las Vegas. It was Ali Floyd Patterson. I take an old boxing manager out to dinner. He's kind of shuffling around, you know. He gets you know, walking around money to, to be on the scene, I guess, to look for sympathetic uh, sports writers who would take him to dinner. And he told me this wonderful story about owning a gym which had three flights of dark stairs. And he would, at night, he slept with a, uh, a gun and a, a German Shepherd. Uh, in the gym, and at night he would be waiting for the footsteps of a kid who would come up alone at night and obviously scared, but, you know, using his fear to fuel his determination to get up those stairs and learn how to box. And this kid, said the old boxing manager, would become a contender, not necessarily a champion, which is luck, but a contender, you know, coming out of your own heart and soul, you know, doing the best that you can. So I was a flame. And uh, what kind of kid? What would happen? Who would be waiting for him at the top? And uh, so I, I wrote this novel uh, called The Contender. The old boxing manager, who, uh, as I realize now, was much younger than I am right now, but seems so old to me when I was 26, um, was named Cus D'Amato. And after that night in Vegas, he went 
to a friend's house in upstate New York and just rocked on the porch waiting to die. His life was over. Uh, he had managed Floyd Patterson and Jose Torres, but, you know, he was persona non grata in boxing now. Nobody would touch him. And he was rocking on the porch one day. Car pulls up. A former boxer of his comes out who is now a counselor at a juvenile facility, a reform school. He says, Cus, I wonder if you could help me out. We've got this 13-year-old kid at the facility. Weighs 200 pounds. None of it is fat. He's knocked out every kid in the facility. He's starting to work on the guards. <laughs> you could come over and kind of channel some of that anger and energy into the discipline of boxing. And Cus said, no, no, no. But finally he was persuaded. And of course, the kid was Mike Tyson. And, and Cus's life began all over again. Um, and he made Mike Tyson read my book, The Contender. <laughs> it's amazing. Well, so now you were, when you were just starting out, you were with the 1962 Mets, so you're with uh, Casey Stengel, uh, yes. uh, many other players I can, I can probably name. And then you're you're at Cassius Clay fight. Did you did you appreciate no. what what you were around? And, you know that's a really smart question, and the answer is no. I was not sophisticated enough to realize where I was and what was happening. I I knew these were great stories, and I knew that I was privileged, you know, to be in this place and to be working for the New York Times. But did I have any sense of the history? No. You know, there, there were older reporters there who I'm sure did, but I, I didn't really understand. For example, with the Mets, it was great assignment, but I didn't really have the sophisticated background of the other New York Times baseball writers uh, who had covered the Giants and the Dodgers before they were ripped away to the West Coast. And I mean, those guys, you know, saw this as, you know, a kind of uh, you know, mana from heaven, you know, that there was a new team in town. I, I didn't quite have that. And um, when I was covering Cassius Clay, as he was then called in the very beginning, you know, some of the older reporters would say, why are you wasting your time with this kid? You should be on, you know, the northern part of, you know, Miami Beach, where Sonny Liston is training with Joe Lewis. And, you know, I, I read history. I know who Joe Lewis was, but he didn't have that kind of sentimental resonance for me that he had for these old boxing reporters. So um, I, I didn't really see, you know, the, the history of it until later, which I kind of appreciated. And I think I appreciated most um, when uh, Tyson started taking people apart, um, including Holmes, you know, a lovely man, lovely boxer, once a, who had taken Ali apart. And he worked. I'm from Easton, so Larry Holmes lives right where uh, where we are. We are. Yeah, he, he seems like a really nice guy, and or he he was, you know, at that time. And um, I remember, uh, you know, the the the, the pain of, of of Ali, you know, at the very end, you know, with Larry Holmes, who who also seemed to have some sort of sentimental pain. Of, of beating him so badly. Uh, but then, you know, the cycle comes around and, and Tyson beats Larry Holmes. Mm. It was then, watching Tyson beat Larry Holmes, that I began to more fully understand, you know, the kind of this historical cycle of sports. Mm. Sports seem to present themselves very well for um, these great stories, uh, you know, books and movies. Um, were, are there any other authors or um, directors or films that you really 
for you, you just love? Well, I mean, things like Bull Durham were just kind of wonderful. But I think the film that really turned me on, and I, I don't even think anybody thinks about it anymore, is a film called It Happens Every Spring. And it's a black and white film. Uh, Ray Milan was the star. And it was about a chemistry professor in a small college who's a big baseball fan. And while he's, you know, teaching his chemistry labs, he's really on this little radio and he's listening to the St. Louis Cardinals. And uh, a ball comes crashing, a baseball comes crashing through his laboratory window and smashes the bottle of chemicals he had been working on for years, you know, his big experiment. And when he lifts the ball out, and puts it on the table, he notices that the ball moves away from anything made of wood. And slowly he comes to realize that whatever liquid is in this, left in this bottle, you know, is an anti-wood, it's a wood repellent, and he could become a pitcher for the St. Louis Cardinals. And strike everybody out because nobody. Once he once he got a little of the substance on the ball, nobody could touch it with their bat. And it goes, it's a comedy, of course, and it's a wonderful movie as he wins. You know, the, this, this meek chemistry professor becomes a tough, you know, baseball pitcher who wins the World Series. And somehow that really that really bit into the idea that we must all feel those moments before you fall asleep when you're winning the World Series or, or throwing the touchdown that wins the Super Bowl, that kind of the fantasies that we all live. Being, being around all these, these great players um, as a writer, and, and you've, now you've seen behind the scenes, behind the stage curtain, um, did it change your perception of them? Well, not really. I mean, um, it was it was uh, our, our favorite players and disadvantage that I had not been a really major fan. I mean, uh, sports writers who had been really major fans growing up really had a body of knowledge and also a kind of emotional reservoir uh, from which they plucked their feelings. I didn't really have that. And so I, I really kind of approached everything with a, in the same way that I approached when I covered the cops. And, and I, I had other assignments besides sports you know, coming up. And um, so um, it, it would have to be the individual that touched me, not anything that I had known about. It. I mean, something like Mickey Mantle. Um, you know, I, I really had... Other than knowing growing up that, you know, he was a great player and, you know, he had bad legs and he expected to die early from cancer like everybody else in his family. I didn't have really major understanding about who he was and what he was like. So that the first time that I ever met him, which was a kind of charged situation, 1960, I'm 22, uh, a fan had jumped out of the stands in Yankee Stadium, ran across center field, and punched Mickey in the face. I punched Mickey Mantle in the mouth. What? Yeah, I punched him, and they took him to the hospital, and then they canceled the rest of the week. You punched who in the mouth? Mickey Mantle. Whoa, in 1960, there was no recreational violence. This was pretty hot stuff. So the managing editor of the paper, not this portion, the managing editor of the paper said, send somebody up there to talk to Mickey Mantle about what happened last night. So they decided to send the most expendable person, which was, you know, I was on night rewrite. They sent me up and I got to Yankee Stadium well before the game. Mickey and Yogi Berra are playing catch in front of the dugout. Uh, and I... Um, I said uh, to Mickey, excuse me, Mr. Mantle, I was wearing a suit and tie. Excuse me, Mr. Mantle, could I talk to you about what happened? 
He just kind of casually looked over his shoulder and he said something that I probably can't say on your podcast, but it was it was a very crude and impossible suggestion. Figure it out. <laughs> and so I kind of thought he wouldn't say that. This is Mickey Mantle. I must have heard wrong. So I rephrased the question. And he signaled Yogi, and I had a lot of more hair then, and he started throwing the ball. I mean, the control was amazing. So he started throwing the ball through my hair. I realized the interview was over. <laughs> and, and that was, was Mickey. And I remember feeling really bad because I felt that I was the only person in the world who had ever provoked Mickey into using bad language. Now, should I even be in this business? I mean, I, I really, I, you know, I had some of the same feelings that women must have, you know, when they've been assaulted as well, you know, what did I do wrong? So it was really a very long time before I confided in an older reporter. I told him what happened. He said, oh, it's Mickey being Mickey. You should see spit at kids who ask for autographs. He's got a terrible mouth on him. And then I was really angry, but I wasn't so much angry at, at Mickey as I was at bad reporting at sports writers. He never really told us who these guys really are, what they're really like. So there's a coda to this story. So now, 20 years later, something like that, yeah, well, 25 years later, 25 years later, Mantle has been uh, uh, banned from uh, baseball for a while, for betting or something. I forget what it was. In any case, what he does for a living is uh, joke a stroke golf. You know, you go to a country club and get paid a lot to just kind of walk around with, you know, big CEOs and they slap each other on the butt and tell stories. So uh, I'm doing a piece for Sunday morning, CBS Sunday morning, I'm working at the time. After his day of drinking very heavily and playing joker stroke golf, you know, they set two camera shoot back in the country club in the deserted bar. And he's still drinking and we have this, you know, conversation. And uh, he's not interested, and he's bored, and he's, you know, monosyllabic answers. It's a terrible interview. So I think, what the hell? So I said, Mickey, and, and the camera's rolling. I said, Mickey, now let's stop here. This is not going anywhere. But before we end, let me tell you something. I've always thought you were a stone, you know, I figure out the next word. And... He looked at me so I, for the first time he's interested, you know, now, it, it's a little different now. It's a different interview. And I said, yeah. And uh, I said, you don't want to know why I felt that way and still feel that way? But why? So I told him the story that I just told you. And he looked at me and he said, really? He reached down, brought up his his drink, you know, took a long slug. And he said, you know, Bob, I remember that really well. His eyes are dancing and he's smiling. I remember that really well. Oh boy, it really bothered me for years. And that's why I became a drunk. <laughs> and, and at that moment, I got an insight into the real Mickey Mantle. No wonder his teammates loved him. No wonder people thought he was, you know, kind of you know, country hilarious. You know, I, it was kind of a wonderful moment. We both laughed. And then I said, could we start the interview again? And he said, yeah, let's, let's do it. And, and then we had a wonderful interview in which he ended up telling me that he has these terrible dreams in which um, he's late for a game at Yankee Stadium, 
and he's trying to crawl under the fence to get into the ballpark, but he's stuck and he can't move. And on the PA system, the now batting for New York, you know, number seven, and he, and he can't move and you know, it's terrible. It was kind of very revealing. It was a man uh, with a lot of issues and problems. It was wonderful. And, and I had never, of course, as a reporter, gotten anywhere near that, you know, until, until that day. And, you know, I mean, I, I think it, it, to me, I kind of understood how much we don't really understand the pain, the inner life, the insecurities of these guys who um, in, in every way are everyday people with one extraordinary skill, mm -hmm. with something that we can't even imagine doing ourselves, although we fantasize about it. But in every other way, you know, they're the same people that we are. They're not these, you know, bold, aggressive, you know, heroes that we like to think they are. I would love to to, um, to speak to a few of them. And, and I'd, like, I'd like to know nowadays with social media, um, I mean, people just write horrific things about uh, sports personalities and actors and uh, actresses and anybody, even, you know, me. Um, how do they handle that? I don't. I don't guess that you would have gotten that um, now. Well, and and you know this this is a perfect thing for you and, and your video cast because um, retired athletes, most of whom nobody ever talks to anymore, you know, unless it's you know Joe Namath or somebody who you know still evokes some excitement, um, really are wonderful repositories of stories and information and you know by the time they're in their 40s and 50s you know they're ready <laughs> they're finally ready to talk they have nothing to lose um, and uh, it's really interesting how they have had to deal with celebrity and fame how they've had to deal with people you know misinterpreting them entirely um, if they brush somebody off you know, n nobody ever thinks that, you know, they're in pain or their their mind is really messed up. They've just lost or whatever. But I, I, I think, you know, s starting to talk to them would be kind of wonderful. That's great. Sure. You know, I have I have some really uh, interesting. Well, Art Shamsky, I'm going to talk to in a couple of weeks from the Mets um, and Ed Hearn from the 1986 Mets, who has an interesting story. So I love to hear about positive stories. That's what I'm about. But, yeah. Looking back, do you is there anybody or, or or a few people who who you just think back to and smile like that you covered who were like yeah. really nice people? I mean, I I I spent a lot of time at ESPN, you know, on those number one shows, you know, and I always got laughed out out of the room when I said I thought the greatest you know sports figure of our times was Billie Jean King, hmm. not Muhammad Ali, you know, not you know any quarterback you can think of, but, um, you know, how she really empowered half the world, you know, all women, and, and how, you know, historically and socially important she was. I liked her enormously. She made me smile. The other one who made me smile was a very obscure boxer, although he did win the middleweight uh, and welterweight titles, uh, Dick Tiger. Hmm. And, um, he was from Nigeria. He was from a part of Nigeria that became Biafra, that broke away from Nigeria and then entered a civil war in which Nigerians, you know, bombed his hometown, killed a lot of relatives and all. And when he came back to America to fight and to get some money to, to send to his compatriots, he decided to write a letter to the queen. Uh, Nigeria was in the Commonwealth, and he had read that John Lennon of the Beatles had returned his order of the British Empire. And Dick Tiger, when he became champion, had gotten such a medal. And he wanted to write a letter to the queen 
and he wanted to send the medal back, you know, as protest to the fact that the British were doing nothing uh, to stop the Civil War, to help his people, the Biafrans. And I was a columnist at the Times then, I had covered boxing, and he asked me to help him. So ethically, I'm not sure whether it was the right thing to do or not, but I was a columnist, not a reporter, so I thought I could do it. So we wrote a letter to the Queen, you know, explaining why we were doing this, and then wrapped his medal. The two of us went to the post office and mailed this package to the Queen. And, and for me, that was a really kind of poignant moment. Um, it is sad, but it certainly you know, gave me a smile. He died early. He died poor. He was uh, a guard at the uh, Metropolitan Museum. Oh. Uh, he was about 42 when he died. But um, you know, that, that's kind of a memory that is really stuck in my mind. And that and Billie Jean King are, I think, two of the most important athletes in my life. Was there, was there somebody looking back that really um, helped you or inspired you to, to, to do what you do? As a writer? As a writer. Oh, yeah. Um, I don't think my first job at the Times was a uh, was copy boy. You know, really glamorous job. You sharpen pencils. You know, when these dyspeptic guys on the copy desk yelled, boy, there were no girls at that time. Boy, you kind of ran over and snatched, you know, some piece of paper and took it to another desk. Um, one of the worst jobs was filling up big vats of paste, library paste, which were used in the way that in those days they mocked up, you know, the, the pages for the newspaper. The only thing that kept me there was uh, a 25-year-old report. I was 19. And he was 25, and he was what I would become, the night rewrite reporter. His name was Gay Talese, who became, in his own way, a very famous writer of our time. And um, among my jobs was going out and getting coffee for other people and cocoa for Gay Talese. But along with bringing him cocoa, you know, would be these mini lectures on journalism the encouragement, support, you know, telling me to start writing feature stories. Uh, and so I, I think that trying to be like Gay and trying to follow in his footsteps was incredibly inspirational. And so one night, despite his inspiration, I decided to quit. I hated the job. hated being a copy boy. Didn't like these old dyspeptic men, you know, who were the copy editors. My my hours were 7 p.m. to 3 a.m. Um, <laughs> that was the life. Oh. And so I decided to quit. But the first person I told was gay. I said, you know, I really appreciate everything you've done, but I can't. I can't. I've been doing it for about a year, year and a half. I can't do this anymore. I, I got to go out and get a real job and start writing. And he said, well, I think you're making a mistake. I think, you know, you're talented. I think you're a nice, polite boy. <laughs> I think you're just the kind of fellow that the New York Times is looking for these days. So I think you should stay. But if you don't stay, I'll make a deal with you. I'll give you $5,000. This is 1958. Wow. $5,000. More than a year's salary for me. Uh, and in return, I'll take 10% of everything you make as a freelance writer for the next five years. I have that much faith in you. And I just, whoa. And you know, him saying that, was all the encouragement I needed to stay. Because I heard him say I had some worth and some value. So I stayed. And a couple of months later, I was promoted. And by 21, I was the youngest reporter on the paper. So now it's 
50 years later, 50 years later, and I'm writing my memoir, an accidental sports writer. And um, I interview some of the important people in my life, including Gay Talese. And we're sitting there and talking. And, and at the last question I ask is, so Gay, let me ask you this. 50 years ago, um, you offered me this deal. And I explained it. I said, is there any possibility now that you could have been just kidding? And he said, oh, yeah, probably. <laughs> so my, whole, my whole career was built on a lie. <laughs> but it all worked out. But it all worked out. Uh, I have two last questions, and then uh, I, I appreciate everything. Um, what do you say now to, to kids? Um, the games, playoff games ended, and World Series ended at you know, 12.30, 1, 1.30 in the morning. Tough for anybody. Um, you see what just happened with the Astros, um, whether it's right or wrong. Um, kids are impressionable. Um, there's soccer now. There's lacrosse. There's there's a lot of other things. There's video games and uh, iPads and iPhones. And what do we say to kids um, as far as baseball? At some point, I would think that it would uh, it, it would catch up to Major League Baseball that they're not really promoting the sport in the right way for for young kids. Oh, Right, it catches up to every sport. I mean, what do you say to a kid who wants to play football and, and get his uh, you know, bell rung? Um, I, I think that you have to, about baseball, play the game. Appreciate the game, you know. Um, hope that you have a coach as good as you had who says, watch the twitching muscles in the forearm <laughs> to see what the pitch is going to be. Um no, I, I, I think you have to look past it in the same way that, you know, when you think of great ball players, um, if you want to make heroes out of them, make heroes out of them for how hard they worked, their dedication to their skill, the idea that, you know, this is a craft that you could master as well um, if it turns you on, if you like doing it. I, I, I think you have to and you need adult help sometimes, you have to look past all this other stuff. You can't let it, you know, you can't allow what's happening in America right now to turn you off democracy. I mean, do you want to say, you know, because we have a lawless president at a desperate time, you know, that, uh, wow, democracy doesn't work. Uh, you know, we'll go live in a cave or become, you know, authoritarians. So you have to tell kids, you know, Follow the sport that you love uh, and play it and try to get past all these other things which happen in every other aspect of American life. Exactly. That's a great answer. Uh, last question. Um, what's the perfect day to you? Like now? Like what is your perfect day? What do you What do? You, do? you just wake up and by the time you go to bed at night, you just think to yourself, that was just the, that was the perfect day. Well, um, I've had a good conversation with my wife. Uh, I've talked to my kids and grandkids. I've walked the dog at least once. Uh, and I've spent at least five or six hours writing, writing anything. That's a perfect day. And then to really top it off, if um, we can go out to dinner at a friend's house. <laughs> I live on an island off the coast of Long Island. It's called Shelter Island. And um, it's a very isolated place, particularly in the wintertime. So there's a lot of home and home. You know, people make dinner for each other. And there's not a lot of, you know, fancy going out. There's no, there's no fancy restaurants or pubs or places to go. Um, so that's kind of a, a kind of a perfect day, um, right? You know, talk to my family, walk the dog, and then see friends at the end of the day. Awesome. The wine. <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds perfect to me. Well, I appreciate it, Robert. I definitely do. It was nice. Talk. I could probably talk to you all 
all afternoon. It's fun talking to you, Ryan. We'll do it again sometime. Absolutely. I'd love that. Thank you so much. Thank you. Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out for a chance to win the French Open title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV, live in HD. Don't miss a moment with daily live coverage and match replays on demand, beginning Monday, May 20th. Be there for all the unforgettable moments. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water it starts to just taste bland and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to my podcast. If you're looking for social media content for your contracting business, painting contractors, carpenters, electricians, any type of contractor, please check us out on Instagram at Amato Media or check us out on LinkedIn. We can definitely help you all out. So have a great day.